seen it. I'm alive. That's good. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for a chance to uh, come together to remember these themes that we've talked about all through Advent, that your coming literally has changed the world forever. We thank you for this family we get to share a time of celebration with. We just ask that you would, would open our hearts today to all that, is, uh, that you have for us. Help us to hear your word, to, to apply it, and to be transformed into the image of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, just one announcement that was so last minute it didn't make the bulletin. We just decided on a whim last week. Tonight at 7, those of you that want to just sing Christmas carols for an hour, come show up at 7 tonight and we will be singing Christmas carols here tonight. I just wanted to remind you about that. Um, we're in Zechariah chapter 3 and 4 today. This is the fourth week of Advent. Advent is when we celebrate this coming uh, of, of Jesus, the coming that he came 2,000 years ago, the coming that we're looking forward to uh, in the future, hopefully the, the near future, and reflecting on the reality of what that coming means to the hope BC that we live in right here and right now, right? The, the, the need of hope for us and for the world around us, the lack of peace in the world. I'm still buzzing a little bit, aren't I? Let me do this. Back. Because I have uh, very little peace and hope when I hear myself. All right. I don't know if that worked. Better? All right. So we've, we've kind of walked through these ideas of hope and peace and joy and love because that is what our world is longing for. That's what we see coming in Jesus. And we've been looking at this really weird place to draw those ideas from, the, these dreams of Zechariah. If this is your first Sunday here on the dream sequence that we're going through in Zechariah, um, you're going to jump, you, you've cut right to the heart of the matter because what they do in the Hebrew is very often they, they build to the center and work their way out to prove a point. So there were dreams, the first dream and the last dream, number one and number eight, that he had were all about God will come and God will act, but the question was when and hoping for that to come. And the second dream and the seventh dream talked about evil being banished and peace coming. And the, the third and the fifth, this, this Jerusalem that would be ever expanding, that couldn't be contained with walls uh, cleansed of all evil and the joy that would come from that. And today we hit the center two dreams, dream three and dream four in chapter three and four. That's so nice how they did that for us. Focused on the fact that there is one coming who can bring all this about, not just for the Jewish nation, but for the whole world. So we're going to start by reading the third dream. Or yes, the third dream, fourth dream, third dream. Yes. Third dream. Fourth dream. Thank you. It gets confusing. We're going to read chapter three, which is the fourth dream, which is not as helpful as I thought it was when I just made that comment a minute ago. Chapter three, we're going to start with that. We'll look at that dream, then we'll move on to the other. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is, this, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? 
Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. And then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And in that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Well, if you had to sum up dream number four in one sentence, you could say the priest is purified. Okay, that's, that's kind of the sentence. Zechariah's been building to this hope that things can be made right again. Remember, the people have come back from Babylon, 70 years in captivity. They're back in the land of Israel again. But Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. It doesn't look very hopeful. And so Zechariah's dreams are all about things getting made right again. But today we see two characters, Joshua in this dream and Zerubbabel in the next dream, that are very tangible symbols of God working in his people. Joshua was the son of Jehozadak. If you want to learn more about him, you can read Ezra chapter 3. Uh, he was the one who, after the captivity, came back and was put in as the high priest of the Jews. Uh, Zechariah knew him. He would have known what he looked like. And so when he sees him standing there, you see, you see this Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, which is a Hebrew word for the accuser or the adversary, it says, is accusing him. And we see that the Lord responds to the accuser in verse 2. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And the thing you'll miss if you, if you read too quickly is this. Satan is there accusing Joshua, the high priest. And the accusations are true. See, Joshua was, was standing there, the high priest of the nation, and in this image he was dressed in filthy clothes. Now, if you go back and read about what the high priest should wear in Exodus chapter 28, it was not filthy. Everything was purified <coughs> and clean and, and had symbolic meaning. And see, the point is not that Joshua was so good that he could be the high priest. The point was that, 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 that he's been chosen to be the high priest. Even the phrase is descriptive. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Joshua's not good enough to be the high priest that Israel needs. But the point is, he's called to be the high priest because of God's decision, not his worthiness. And that's one of the things we have to remember to bring hope. We are all called into a relationship with God, not because we're good enough, but because, as our candle says today, because of his love. And you see right away what the angel does is, is give him new clothes. Take these filthy things off of him and, 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 and purify his sin. That's where the wording, uh, it looks a lot like what we see, but we saw back in Isaiah in September. See, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. You know, there's a, every year 
there's a player or two on my basketball team. You knew we were going to get there. Um, there's a player or two on my basketball team that plays well. Their biggest, the biggest defense to them, though, is a voice that's in their head. Kerry Larson calls it the inner critic. And I have these players that do just great, but when they come to the bench, you can see that they're just criticizing. They spend 90% of their time reflecting on the two mistakes they made instead of, the, and only 10% on the way they played well. And we had a game the other night, and, and one particular player who struggles with this, who does a great job for our team, came off the floor to rest on the bench, and I could just see. You can, you can tell when the inner critic is going. And so I just walked over to her and I said, hey, you know what? Uh, you need to stop listening to that voice in your head. And she kind of smiled because we've had this conversation before. I said, you played just fine. And that critic inside your head, I cut from the team. They are not allowed on the bench. Right? And, and I, the, the thing is, we often get so distracted by our failures. By the places where we mess up. And we have this nice little friend, the adversary, who will remind us, the accuser, the sa Satan, who will remind us of all our failures over and over and over again, will remind us that we're standing here as a priest of God in dirty clothes. And the point is, it's not your worthiness that puts you there. It's the decision of God and his love for you. Receive the grace of God. Listen to the charge that's given to Joshua after this happens in verse 6 to 8. The angel of the Lord gave this charge. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you'll govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among those standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. You see... Joshua has been chosen to be the priest of the people. He's been cleansed by God and made, made, made fit to serve in that role. And now Joshua and the people serving with him are called to follow and to represent. I love this. Walk in my ways. Be faithful to what I've called you to do. Just like us today, we're called to follow Jesus, to walk in his ways, to demonstrate what he looks like, to, to obey what he called us to do. And as we follow, we begin to represent. And I, I've done this a hundred times, so I hope you get this. The word represent is re-present. Do you see that? We are to represent Christ to the world around us by the way we live. I love the, the line in verse 8. These, Joshua and the people serving with him are symbolic of things to come. The way we live here now points to things beyond here. The way I try to coach, the way you interact with people, we're called to follow and represent Jesus to the world who is the branch who will come, who will in one day, it says, remove the sin. In one day. We'll get more to that in the end. Let's, let's move over to chapter four, which is dream five. I've got that straight in my head now. <laughs> chapter four, verses one to 14. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. And he asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top with seven lights on it and seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And then I asked the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? And he answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, 
nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Water you, almighty mountain. Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground, and then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. And then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it, and then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. And then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And again I asked him, what are the two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? And he replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. And so he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now, this, this dream's a bit complicated because you have a part of the dream and in the middle, you have this message to Zerubbabel, and then you have some of the dream again at the end, right? The heart of the whole thing in dream number five is that the king is empowered. Along with Joshua, the high priest, the other leader at this time when they came back from Babylon was a guy named Zerubbabel, which is just fun to say, Zerubbabel, right? Uh, he is the under king to Cyrus of Persia. They're still calling the shots much in a way that they should, but he's the guy sent back to be the leader of what's going on in Israel with the first group of returnees from the exile. And, and what the, the message tells us here is that Zerubbabel will be the king that, that gets the temple rebuilt. But it may not be exactly the way people expect it. It will be in a supernatural act that brings it about by the Spirit. And in the beginning of the dream, he sees a solid gold lampstand with two olive trees, one on each, of the, uh, each side. There's a bowl at the top, right? We're not, we don't have solid gold. Any of you guys got a solid gold lampstand at home? Um, we don't have that normally, but there are these seven lights and there's seven channels to each of the lights. And lots of artists have tried to demonstrate this. There's a few pictures that I found. Picture number one, okay, you see the two trees on either side and the golden things pouring oil into the bowl and then these seven channels that are... The idea is it's always going to be lit because the olive oil is coming directly out of the tree. Another, another attempt at drawing it looks like that. Um, you know, these tubes coming out of the tree to feed the big bowl. Which, and then the last one that I saw looked a bit more like that. Right, the bowl's up there behind and there's these seven channels that are feeding. All these things are, are it's an unusual interaction. He sees the lampstand the constant feeding of olive oil to it so that the light doesn't go out. And, and then he's, there's an, it's unusual how the interaction goes, right? In verse four, he says, what are these? In verse five, the angel says, do you not know what these are? Well, that's why I said, he said, no, I don't. And then there's no answer, right? Look at the end of verse five of chapter four. Is it the end of five? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. And then verse six. So he said to me, you would think the answer was going to be what they are. But he doesn't say that. And here comes this message to the king. And then again at the end. In 11 and 12. Do you not know what these are? And then finally he revealed. You see, there's this building of anticipation to understand what this lampstand and these olive branches are. And once again, in the middle is the idea. There's something about this not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how these things are going to happen. It's a, it's, they, they need to realize, the people need to realize that Zerubbabel is going to get the job done on the temple. But he's going to do it with an eternal source. 
It's not going to be his power that's going to overcome this. It's going to be the oil that's keeping the light, which symbolizes God's presence among his people. It's the oil that's constantly feeding in. It's not because, once again, Joshua's not the greatest priest. He's not the perfect priest, but he's been chosen by God. And Zerubbabel's not got enough power to flatten the mountain, it says. He, he, he can stand before the mountain, and he, he can't, as a man, can't really do anything there. But it says it's not by his might or by his power, but by the Spirit, which is that symbol of oil. All throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is symbolized as oil. Like, for example, in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel is anointing David, it says, And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. So this oil is, is this picture that the Spirit is going to feed the presence of God among his people, which is going to enable Zerubbabel to get the temple done, not by might, not by power, but by his Spirit. And that, that idea of the, the mountain you see in verses 7 to 9, that this spirit is going to make the impossible possible. You, you see Zerubbabel looking at this mountain, and how is he ever going to do it? Well, can he order it to move, to become flat? No, he's not got the power to do that. But by the Spirit of God, it says he will not only flatten that mountain, but he will bring out the capstone, the cornerstone, for the temple to shouts of God bless it. God bless it. And once he started the building, the dream says... He's going to finish it, and then you will know that the Lord has sent me. You see, one of the things we've got to realize in these weird and complicated dreams is that God will do things the way God will do them, and not the way we think they should happen. The people have come home. They want a high priest that's perfect. They want a king that's powerful. They want to reestablish themselves in Israel to be who they think they ought to be. And yet God says, it's not going to happen the way you think it is. I'm the one that makes the priest pure. I'm, I'm the one that will empower the king, but not by his own strength. You know, several, several times in the 20 years that I've been here as a pastor, and some of you involved in leadership know this, I'll just be really blunt. There have been times in leadership here where my prayer to God for this church was, God, just don't let the wheels fall off of this place. There have been some pretty tense things happen. There have been people get hurt. There have been decisions that have been made. Can you imagine that? A church where people get hurt. Who ever heard of anything like that? Right? There have been times, I'm not kidding, where I have gone home and said, God, please, just don't let it die on my watch. I don't know what to do. Five or six times I've prayed that. And every single time God has shown up and done something in a totally different way than I expected. And it usually wasn't through vindicating me by lightning pointing from my fingertips, you know. <laughs> usually it wasn't the way I wanted it for me just to say, scroll up, act, play nice. It was somebody out of the shadows standing up and saying something and it just brought the peace of the Spirit to the whole congregation. That's what God does. He doesn't work the way we think He's going to work. But He works. And we see that in verse 10 of chapter 4. I love this, this phrase. Oops, excuse me. Verse 8, maybe. Oh, nope, 10. I'm right, I'm looking at chapter 3. Who despises the day of small things? You see, that's what happens is we want big things to happen. We want power, we want glory, we want to see the amazing things. 
And God says, don't despise the small things. If the temple doesn't look like it used to look, if the city doesn't look like it used to look, don't despise small things. Very often, I am the one working in the small things. We want the big and the glorious and the fast and the furious. And God says, do not despise the small things like kids and flashlights. Don't despise them. Those are beautiful things that speak powerfully. We despise the little and the almost invisible, but that's almost always the way God gets things done. Like a baby born to Jewish peasants in a stable in a town like Yale. No bigger than Yale. Three, 300 people living in Bethlehem except for the census time. And a stable. And that's where God says, that's the place I want to come to. Do not despise the day of small things. And you see all of this, the high priest Joshua. You know what, Joshua, if you say it in Hebrew, you know what it is? Yeshua, which we see translated in the New Testament as Jesus. And the king's rubble, all this cleansing of sin in one day, this eternal lamp lighting the whole world, right? All this, it's all pointing to Jesus. These dreams are giving insight to the time that they come to about what's going to happen in Israel during the day of Zechariah, but they're also symbolic of things to come. Jesus said in Luke 24, 27, well, it's said of Jesus. He's taught walking with the guys on the road to Emmaus. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And I can't help but think that he went back to Zechariah as a part of that whole thing. And he talked about him being the coming priest and king. Both of these were roles that he would fulfill. He, he would come bringing a kingdom, but he would also lay down his life as a sacrifice for sin. In Hebrews 1.3 it says the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins as a priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven as a king. Both images come from that passage. Both images that we see. He's also directly referred to in, in chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to bring my servant the branch, the branch that removes sin, the branch that removes sin in a single day. Another messianic prophecy you'll hear if you come back on Christmas Eve this week, a shoot from Isaiah 11, 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. It's talking about, yeah, this is happening here, but one day the branch is going to come and take care of all sin for all time. And, and, that's good news because you know what? The accusations that we hear about us from Satan very often are true accusations, but they don't matter because one is coming to take all that away, to forgive. And I love the, the way the fifth dreams end in, four, in, in chapter 4, verse 14. These are the two, the king and the priest, who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Anointed to serve. That word anointing is actually... The, the word for Messiah, anointed, the, the anointed one is Messiah or Christ. You see, anytime you see Jesus Christ in the New Testament, it's not his last name. It, it's the title. He is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. John 1.41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, Peter, and tell him we have found the Messiah, the anointed one, that is the Christ, anointed to serve. And Jesus 
comes. Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, these two dreams, and the reason I, I think they're so important as we head into celebrating the birth of Jesus, they remind us that we need a priest to purify us and that Jesus is that priest who will come and offer himself for us. When the accuser is accusing, Jesus says about you and me, this is the stick that has been snatched from the fire. And he cleanses us from our sin. And we need someone not only to cleanse us, but to lead us by the presence of God and maybe to lead us in ways that we don't expect. And that's Jesus too, the king who will come. The one who says, I will be with you. I will lead you. I will make you an example of who I am to the whole world. And here's what I want you to see. And this is, if you've checked out, I've got six more minutes. If you've checked out, check back in for these six minutes. God does this, and, and, and Christmas is such an example. He does it through small things and symbolic acts. That's how God works. How do we take eight dreams and live out the message they bring? Well, we have to start by realizing that once we are set free and forgiven, our life becomes a way to be those people who are symbolic of things to come. That's our calling. Even the very small things in our life can point to Jesus. And we get, we get distracted by the big. Oh boy, do we ever. Um, how many of you heard or thought of on a global scale about what's going on with the impeachment in the U.S. this week. How many of us have had that in our brain, right? How many of you have heard somebody talking this week about whether Trudeau is the best thing or the worst thing ever to happen to Canada, right? How many of you have been on Facebook this week and seen the arguments about the housing project, the 52 units that's coming in? People, we, we are all wrapped up in these big, and we've got to make our voice heard. And you know what? Facebook is the best place to do that, tongue-in-cheek. I'm not... You know, people always get convinced of your ideas. Don't you see people on Facebook all the time saying, oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But we wait in there because we want the big, we want the visible, we want, we want to make change in these big ways. We argue our point. But let me tell you what we're called to as followers of Jesus. Some things that we can give our life to this Advent as a way of Him coming to the world through you and through me. Things that happen not by might, and not by power, but by the Spirit. These dreams, right? They can inspire us to do small things and symbolic acts. This, this verse, chapter 3, verse 8, Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, whose men are, who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. You guys, you and I, who are called to follow Jesus, who've accepted his forgiveness, who've been declared clean before him, we are called to be symbolic of things that are to come. A baby in a manger was a small thing. Shepherds kneeling and wise men bringing gifts were symbolic acts of something bigger. Those things, that, that, the, the small thing of that baby being born in the middle of nowhere and the shepherds kneeling and the wise men coming, those were things that were symbolic of what was to come. And Zechariah's dream calls us to become visions that inspire hope. That's what we're supposed to be, right? He has these dreams and he wonders what they mean and sometimes it takes a while to get the answer like we saw in verse 4 and 12 of chapter 4. What are these? I don't know what they are. Don't you know what they are? I don't know. 
takes a while to figure out what's going on. But all these dreams are meant to inspire hope in Zechariah that God will do what he said he's going to do. And that's our call, to live in such a way among people that inspires those questions, that gives hope to situations that are broken. We are to live as visions that inspire hope. You know, if, if you live as a follower of Jesus doing small things and symbolic acts, people aren't always going to get it. But the cumulative effect over time of the Spirit, when you speak when you get an opportunity and you live in such a way to do small things and symbolic acts, you will make a difference. Because it's not by your might or by your power, it's by the Spirit of God that things get done. And, and one way is that what we talked about the second week, that we are called to live as artisans of peace. Chapter 3, verse 10, or excuse me, chapter 3, 10. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Do you, that, that sounds like such a weird phrase. We, how many times have you ever said that? Come over and sit under my vine and fig tree. We don't use that phrase, Right? But it was very symbolic in their culture of peace. Because you see what happens there. You'll invite your neighbor to come over. There's, there's a relational healing there. And, and they'll sit under your vine, shade, comfort, and your fig tree, food and provision. There's this picture of shalom. That in that day, the day, in one day when sin is taken care of, there'll be relational healing, there'll be provision and comfort and care and everything that we need. You see, the way that we live creates peace with others. Provides for their needs. I was here last weekend and saw Lisa's craft morning. I don't know how many of you saw that where she had the group of girls that did crafts for toddlers. And you know what? Yeah, it was very fun. You know what that is? That's, that's being an artisan of peace because she's creating a world for these families and these kids to say this is what it looks like when people actually love each other and serve each other. It's here Wednesday night when the girls and boys club sang. If you weren't here Wednesday night, you probably heard them from like three blocks away. I've never heard the kids sing like that. Just belting it out. Oh, day of peace, that dearly shot, the dimly shot. They were singing that very song. And I was watching parents, many of whom aren't connected to our church in any way. You know, there was tears. That, that's an artisan. We're, we're, we're presenting a world. It's a small thing and a symbolic act of what's coming and it impacts people on a deep level, right? It's, it's not a sermon, it's not a theological discourse, but people went away knowing that something real happened that night when the kids sang. I, I, I see you volunteering in the community and serving in the different ways that you guys serve. That's being an artisan of peace. The Joshua Project, I see what goes on over there. Taking food to someone who's sick, visiting in the hospital, just offering to pray for someone when they're having a hard time. Can I pray for you? I'm gonna pray for you. Even going to McDonald's coffee with the guys and listening to them solve the political problems of the world and loving those guys and sharing life with them, that is being an artisan of peace. It's a small thing and a symbolic act that the Spirit will use to bring peace and hope. It's all because the Spirit lives in you, so God is with you wherever you go. This never-ending source of light flows through you to the world around you. And all of this enables us as people of Jesus to walk joyfully into the future. Who, who despises the small things, right? Men are going to rejoice when Zerubbabel has this, this 
this measuring thing for the temple they're going to see, they're going to be excited because even though it's smaller than they expected, they realize that God is going to do it. He's going to complete it. And when you realize this, the power of these small things, some of you guys have this inner critic in your head all day long criticizing yourself for what you're not doing for God instead of realizing he's using, he can use all these little tiny things if you'll just wake up to him using them. He's in you. Everywhere you go. Small things, symbolic acts that declare to the world that the kingdom of God is coming. And it becomes an adventure. You try to figure out what, where God's going to work in you next. What's he going to do in this interaction? I'm going for coffee with those old curmudgeons at McDonald's. What is God going to say through me today? How can I show the love of God to them? As I work with these kids at the school or in a daycare or as I, as I talk to my neighbor over the fence, how is God going to act? When you begin to do that, that brings joy to your life because you realize you're living for something bigger than yourself. And you begin to realize the temple that he's building is us. We are the place where the Spirit of God is going to live in the world and shine His light. And when you start to get that, it becomes easier to love as God has loved us. Jesus has come to serve us in love. We're called to do the same. And I find that when people know that they're loved, they love back. When children know they're safe and secure in a parent's love, they have the ability to love other people, to not cling to things, to not be so angry. And the message of Zechariah to the people is that God is with us. He is going to do this. We can relax. We can be joyful. We can love. It may not look as grand and glorious as you hope right away. But through these small things and symbolic acts, he points to a baby who would come, God in human flesh, to show the love of God for each one of us. For us about whom all the accusations are true. But in that moment as the accuser comes, we say, it's not about what you're saying, it's about the love of God for me and what he gave to me. And when you get that, when you just taste it, you know, when you just taste a little bit of it, when you begin to just realize the depth of love that God has for you, I, I defy you to not share it with other people. If you get it, it, you can't stop it. It flows out of you. You become a more forgiving person. You're more patient because you realize all that has been given to you. I still say, if you're having trouble loving somebody, the, the problem is, is not your willpower to love. The problem is you don't realize how much God actually loves you. That if what that person did to you, you did to God, God would still love you. And more. And as you begin to grasp that, you learn to love as God loves us. We light these four candles to remember that we're supposed to be visions that inspire hope. We're supposed to live as artisans of peace. We're supposed to joyfully trust that God is driving the future. And we're supposed to love as we have been loved. And I, I really believe as we surrender to that, as we, we let the Spirit come and fill us and work in those ways, we will see lives renewed and a community transformed by the power of the gospel. That's the vision we have for this church, that, that it's not just us getting in here and talking about things we all agree on. It's about God coming living in us and spreading out into this community in a way that leaves it forever changed through small acts, through small things and symbolic acts. The Spirit touches people. They get a taste of who Jesus is and they come to know Him. Let's pray. God, we work our way through four little symbols, candles. And one little candle in a dark room is very small and symbolic 
And sometimes we feel like our life has very little power over the darkness around us. But please remind us that it's not by might and not by power, but it's by your spirit that lives within us. And as we walk through this week, as we walk and celebrate your birth, as we interact with family and friends, as we uh, engage with people around us, I pray that we can engage in these small things and symbolic acts that would let the world see how deeply you love us all. That we'd be able to lay down our lives for our neighbors, that we'd be able to give generously, that we'd be able to forgive as we have been forgiven. And God, that in that you would change us and change the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we close.